Welcome to a Friday night edition of Tisky Sour. We are talking about COVID, Coonsberg, Cummings, and the Queen. I'm joined as ever by Aaron Bastani. How are you doing, Aaron? I'm very well, Michael. Very happy to be joining you this Friday evening. Always a pleasure. Um, again, I'm slightly coldy. I've got a slightly more nasal voice than, than usual. Everyone's talking about this terrible cold that's going around that's, that's not COVID. Believe the rumors, I tell you. First story. COVID cases and hospitalizations are still uncomfortably high in England and rising. Yet the government in England, at least, is adamant that no new restrictions are needed. Devi Sridhar is a professor in global health, and she has warned this could lead to a need for tougher measures down the line. Yeah, we are in quite a fragile position in the UK. And what we need to be doing is looking at other countries at similar positions to ours and learning how are they controlling COVID. If we do not control COVID now, we will face a winter lockdown. So now is the time to move to plan B, to get face masks in place, to ask people to work from home, to get vaccine certification, to get that uptake higher, and really keep, as we've seen from the statistics just shown, try to get people vaccinated and protected for themselves. That was Devi Sridhar, who's been incredibly insightful throughout this pandemic, saying if we do not control COVID now, we will face a winter lockdown. I'm skeptical of a, per- of, a of a winter lockdown, personally. I, I, I don't think it will happen, um, not to the extent of anything like we, we saw last January. But I can imagine a situation where more restrictions are needed than is currently in Plan B. For example, nightclubs or, or social venues. That's why I agree we should implement Plan B now to avoid something worse later. If you don't remember, Plan B is having masks, having vaccine passports and telling people to work from home. Sage scientists have been clear that it's that latter one that could make the most difference, but the government very keen to get people back into their offices because of their landlord mates, mainly. These are all, or they would all be low-cost steps, but but the government is refusing to roll them out, and they are instead putting all their eggs in the vaccine basket. On that front, there was some good news yesterday. The results of a phase three trial into booster shots of the Pfizer vaccine found it to be 95.6% effective when compared to people who are only double vaccinated. The FT report, in a trial with 10,000 participants who had all completed a two-shot Pfizer regimen, half were randomized to receive a further equal strength dose of the shot and half a placebo. Five cases of COVID were registered in patients receiving the booster compared with 109 who were given a placebo. Now, that is a really, really extraordinary result. The original studies into the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines found them to have around 95% effectiveness, but that was in comparison to being unvaccinated, to having no immunity at all. These, this booster shot, this third dose, is 95% effective compared to being double vaccinated. You're 95% more more protected than already being protected. This could be incredible. It's a lot of protection, and it means the booster campaign will definitely help us through the winter. There are, however, still important unknowns, in particular as to how long this added protection will last. If the protection from a third dose is long-lasting, we could be in a situation where a three-dose regimen of the mRNA vaccines instead of the two-dose one we have now, if rolled out to a large proportion of the population, could virtually eliminate COVID-19, at least in those those countries with high vaccination rates. However, if the third dose wanes just like the second dose, these results would prove less consequential. Amesh Aldaja is a senior scholar at the John Hopkins Center for Health Security. She posed the following questions to the FT. 
Will a third dose just push breakthroughs off to a later date? Is a second-generation vaccine that creates more nasal immunity the actual solution to the breakthrough issues? The virus is always going to be here, and I'm not sure chasing mild mild breakthroughs with intermittent boosters of first-generation vaccines is that valuable. So if this wanes, just like the second dose, we'll be in a, a similar situation in six months' time to that which we are in now. Regardless, though, of how long any booster immunity lasts, even that short-term increase, a six-month increase in immunity, would be good news this winter for those countries that can afford the third dose. For those countries still at the back of the queue, however, booster campaigns in the rich world could spell disaster. This is Dr. Maria van Kerhove, who leads for COVID-19 at the World Health Organization. Here she is speaking to the BBC. If we are boosting some in some countries and and not allowing the vaccine to reach those who need it most, their first and second dose is prolonging the pandemic. Um, This pandemic will last as long as we allow it to. And, you know, we're thinking into 2022, at least till the end of 2022. And then we have to see what happens as the pandemic evolves. We're still very much in the middle of this. I know people are ready to be over with it, but we can't will it to be over. We actually have to take the measures and it's vaccination and it's vaccination and these additional measures. But just so we be, can't let up. Just to be really clear, and I know you're short of time, but just to be really, really clear, the decisions of politicians like Boris Johnson and others in countries to continue to up the vaccine uptake in their domestic politi- populations, that's going to make this thing last longer for everyone everywhere. It will, unfortunately. So the the effectiveness of these boosters very much double-edged. It suggests that those of us in rich countries are going to have a a, a much better winter than we otherwise would have done. But the more effective the the third jab, the further back in the queue those in poorer countries get. Remember, many countries in Africa, I think on average, Africa has about 2% of the population vaccinated. So really appalling inequality on this front. Aaron, um, what's your take on these results about boosters? As I say, if this is long lasting, this could be completely transformational if we get 95% protection in the long term against COVID-19, or it could just be a short term measure that gets us through another six months before we even need another booster jab or we need to accept that we're all going to get a breakthrough infection. I think buying another six months at this point would be would be pretty impressive, Michael, because you have to obviously consider the development of the initial vaccine happened in, in less time than that. And the people behind the the BioNTech-Moderna vaccine have said that they could create far more precise drugs to deal with different variants and so on rather quickly, between six and eight weeks. And I think they're they're probably being developed as we speak. So I think the idea that, oh, well, it would only buy you six months or a year, I don't necessarily accept that as an argument. What's clearly correct, however, and at odds with the government now proceeding to give us all a third dose, is that that takes away doses from the third world, the global south. Now. I would say something in response to that, which perhaps is a bit controversial with our audience, which is it is more sensible to give somebody over the age of 65 three doses than somebody under the age of 18 one dose. And so we talk about vaccine apartheid, which is absolutely true, and how poorer countries in the global south, particularly sub-Saharan Africa, particularly South Asia, aren't getting access to this stuff. And that's obviously deeply unjust. But at the same time, older populations think Japan, bits of East Asia, Europe, bits of North America, that they would need this far more. So an equitable distribution of the vaccine would also look at aging demographics. So a country like Japan or Italy is in far more trouble with this than, say, Nigeria. Take away the absence of of healthcare infrastructure in the latter. 
compared to the former. Uh, and then finally, the point about using a third dose of a very early vaccine, which is what we're dealing with right now. We've all got in our bodies, most of us. I've, I had the AstraZeneca one. I think you did too. Michael, did you have Pfizer? I had Moderna, um, actually, which is the, so, you the know, most effective. So, we've had effective. two doses. Well, we'll see. <laughs> Um, you know, it's, it's still, we still haven't got all the data in yet, but it seems that way. Yeah. Clearly we're, we're using what will prove to be the most primitive vaccines in, in the long run. At the same time, he's saying, well, there's no real precedent to give people a third dose with such a primitive vaccine. True. But we've also never created a vaccine for a new pathogen in less than a year and rolled it out on a global scale in under 18 months. So you know, the idea that you talk about precedent and what you've done in the past when trying to sort of make sense of how we're responding to COVID, I, I don't necessarily buy. And look, at the end of the day, particularly in democracies, in Britain or in the US or in France or in Italy, the head of state, the political class is always going to look out for their people rather than the global common interest because they're seeking re-election. And we've seen what happens if you don't get on top of this. The economy closes down, mass demobilization creates potential political stability problems and so on. Trump was not re-elected because of COVID. The likes of uh, Macron and Johnson, they don't want to do that. So yes, of course, they should coordinate, but they're not going to uh, within reason. There'll be a little bit of coordination, but nowhere near enough. And I suppose that's why, I mean, the WHO, the, the clip we showed you was from the, the COVID lead for the WHO. I hear them quite a lot speak about how, you know, we need to ramp up the donations from rich countries to poor countries. And I absolutely agree. We do. We've pledged way more vaccines than we've actually given. We, we really haven't sort of matched um, the rhetoric there. But I hear them less often sort of hammer home this point about we need to create the infrastructure to generate vaccines in poorer countries. I would, I would like to hear a bit more of that and about loosening the patents, which countries such as South Africa and India are desperate to do. Um, moving on from vaccines and the non-pharmacological interventions or non-pharmaceutical interventions, sorry, we are getting mixed messages from the Tory party when it comes to masks and in particular when, when and where we should wear them. On Wednesday, after the experts had encouraged the public to wear masks in crowded spaces, the FT Sebastian Payne made a pretty decent point at a Downing Street press conference. Mr. Javid, is there a difference here between what you're telling people to do and the behaviour of some senior public figures? For example, Professor Powers just said we should be in a situation of wearing masks in tight indoor spaces to ensure there is ventilation. Um, in the House of Commons today, the benches were completely packed. Nobody on the Conservative side was wearing a mask. And one of your ministerial colleagues said that he was planning a Christmas party, which seems to go against the kind of advice we're being given. So isn't there a slight difference between you're telling the public to do one thing and acting differently yourself. Well, I, I think, I think uh, Seb, that is a very fair point and think that we, as I say, we've all got our role to play in this and uh, and we, the people standing up on the stage, we play our sort of, uh, let's say, our, uh, our public roles and, uh, you know, as a, as a Secretary of State, as someone in the NHS, as the head of UXA, we've got big roles to play, but we also have a role uh, to play and set an example as, as, as private individuals uh, as well. And I think that's a very fair point and I'm sure a lot of people would have heard you. Thank you all very much. Thank you. It was a decent question there, and it sounded like Sajid Javid implying there would be a shift from the tall reason that they might start to wear masks. Would we see a shift as we go into winter? It seems not. The following day, this was how Cabinet member Jacob Rees-Mogg answered a question from the SNP about the lack of masks worn by the Tories in the Commons. 
mask wearing. Um, as regards to responded to the, the shadow leader, um, I would say there's no advice to wear uh, face masks um, in workplaces. And the advice um, on crowded spaces is with crowded spaces with people that you don't know. We on this side know each other. Now, it may be that the Honourable Gentleman doesn't like mixing with his own side. He may want to keep himself in his personal bubble. He may find uh, the other members of the SNP, who I normally find extraordinarily charming, but he may not take this um, Catholic view of his uh, other honourable and right honourable members, and I sympathise if that is the case, uh, but we on this side have a more convivial, fraternal spirit, and therefore are, are following the guidance of Her Majesty's Government. That was Jacob Rees-Mogg making out that wearing a mask isn't a polite gesture to those around you. It's actually a sign that you're you're anti-social. You're not someone who likes to have a convivial relationship with those around you. Aaron, public health messaging doesn't really get worse than that, does it? Michael, thank God we don't have a pathogen here, which is like Ebola. Can you imagine? Fifty <laughs> percent fatality rate. Can you imagine Jacob Rees-Mogg going around, giving a high five, shaking hands, drinking out of your glass? You know, presumably he spits in his friend's mouth. Look, if if, mm. if, if, if proximity of social interaction is a, is a is a key marker of, of your friendliness and openness to strangers. Come on. We don't hug and kiss generally in English culture and British culture. You, you shake people's hands. We're going to start hugging and kissing each other. This is ridiculous, Michael. And we're very fortunate, like I say. Look, we have done a ton of content over the last 12 months about how this is going to be the first big, well, actually, it's the third coronavirus this century, but there, there are going to be so many more pathogens over the course of the 21st century because of biodiversity breakdown, because of climate change, and not spillover. You know, the fact that we've got the global south just munching up resources as they deserve to because they want a standard of living like the global north, that's going to have huge spillover effects in terms of new pathogens that affect humans. They could be much more deadly than these coronaviruses have been so far. I said, you know, Ebola is one, HIV AIDS is another, probably entered the sort of the, the human uh, world in the 60s after somebody ate bushmeat, probably simian bushmeat. And look, that sort of thing is going to keep on happening. And so we need a, a more sensible political conversation than oh, wearing a mask means that you're, you know, impolite. It's just so utterly, irredeemably stupid. You know, we are, we are looking at exceptionally, exceptionally, you know, literate publics now when it comes to science. Yes, there are some people who deny the science, but actually, you know, the vast majority of people are quite informed about these things. And we just have such an inept, stupid thing being said by one of the most powerful people in the government of the world's fifth largest economy. You know, it's really important to say this, Michael, 10, 15 years ago, somebody like Jacob Rees-Mogg, with the things he says, his default position on things like this, somebody like him, he, he, I know he was in the Conservative Party, but with this public prominence, he would have been a UKIP MEP, and he would have been a pariah and a laughingstock. And what we're seeing now, really post-2016, post is people like him moving to the centre of public life when it comes to the political conversation. And look, Brexit's one thing, trade's one thing. We're dealing with a virus, Michael, it's life and death. And so this nonchalant idiocy can't carry on, right? And I, I don't think actually, I don't think anybody will buy it. We'll talk about this perhaps. I don't think we will have another lockdown for political reasons. But if we did, I, I think there will come a point when people just say, enough is enough. We can't have this anymore. And that doesn't mean they turn to the left. But I, I, think, I think, like I say, this nonchalance is just is too much now. It is too much, Michael. If we go through something like we had at the beginning of this year, with three months lockdown, oh my God. That I think that would cultivate a, a genuine mind shift, which doesn't reverse against people like Jacob Rees-Mogg. Let's take this question directly on, because I, I, I don't think we will have anything like a lockdown, actually. I think easily 
it could be the case that cases plateau if those boosters get rolled out. That should have, I think, actually quite a big impact on, on things such as hospitalizations. Kids who have been really driving the, the epidemic over the past couple of months, they're going to start having immunity from natural infection and also from vaccines. You will get some waning. I don't think, you know, I don't think you're going to have a great winter, but I feel like probably infections are going to sort of continue at this pace of being uncomfortably high without ever getting above 100,000, for example. Maybe they will. I really don't want to be held on that. But I don't think we're going to see a situation where it seems so extreme that we have to tell people to stop socializing, to stop seeing each other. What I do think is, is more up for debate is, should we not be taking the simple measures that make the lives of people working in the NHS less hellish and that mean that we don't have more unnecessary infection and more unnecessary deaths than we need to. I, I don't really think at the moment the debate is between absolute catastrophe and lockdown or something reasonable. I think it's between something which is pretty bad, more people dying than need to die, more people getting long-term illness than need to get long-term illness, or something which is quite a bit better, but which you know isn't, isn't that costly at all. Have some masks. Yes, let's ramp up this booster campaign. Let's tell people to take lateral flow tests all the time. The government have stopped stop telling people to do that. So it, it, to me, seems like we could have simple measures to save some lives, to make the NHS less, less hell-like. I don't think a lockdown is at all on the table. Aaron, you do think that you still think we might get to a situation where, you know, there's just no choice and it, it's looking so terrible that the government are going to have to do a massive U-turn and say, sorry, we fucked it again, lads. Lockdown. I don't think I don't think a lockdown will happen, like you say, Michael, for political reasons. I think, you know, if you're looking at 200 casualties, I don't think there should be a lockdown at 200 casualties a day unless it's going to make a difference in the long term. And lockdowns are short-term solutions. I prefer a long-term solution. But I, I think, Michael, clearly there are many countries, if you had 200 fatalities a day, there, there would be a lockdown. There won't be because of the politics around it. There, there simply won't be. You can't be Soho Council, Westminster Council, get rid of all the outdoor dining in Soho. You can't be the government, you know, making huge sweeping changes reversing the universal credit changes, and they say, actually, we're going to have another lockdown. It, it would fly in the face of everything the government has done, not just on vaccine rollout, on everything it's done for the last year. However, you know, today we're hearing about a, a Delta Plus variant. It's not impossible. And I think it's fair to say that, you know, we're looking now at, at really high case numbers. The weather two weeks ago, Michael, or a week ago even, was really good. Two weeks ago was incredibly clement. If you go fast forward now to, let's say, Christmas, people crisscrossing the country, visiting relatives, seeing one another, celebrating, I hope, we deserve it, we all deserve it, you know, what will the case numbers be in January? And I, I do think that's a serious question. Now, again, I don't think there sh should be a lockdown necessarily, but I think, I think it's highly plausible, Michael, even in the absence of a new variant, which is worse than the Delta variant, and that seems to have already happened with Delta Plus, but the jury's out, I think it's highly plausible that we stretched the NHS in January just like we did at the height of the crisis a year ago. I think that's highly, highly plausible. Yeah, we won't have a lockdown, but you know, you, you would be looking at several, at least several hundred deaths a day, far higher case numbers than at the moment. That is a crisis. That is a crisis. That's not normal. We should really press home this point that people working in the NHS right now or people who need emergency care in the NHS is a really bad situation. Which is, which is why the, the government position, which is, oh, no, actually, the pressures are completely sustainable. We don't need to take extra measures, I think, is, is a bit offensive, really. But. So this is why, you know, I always thought it makes perfect sense to have people say, how oh, you support vaccine passports? I think for things like nightclubs, you clearly, it makes sense to have proof of a recent test, right? If you're going to open nightclubs, you're going to open, you know, bars, pubs, where people are standing up, generally speaking, en masse. I think, I think you probably do need to show evidence of a recent test. Yes. 
I think well-ventilated schools, yes. Masks on public transport, yes. These are all small additive things. And when you talk about them, people say, oh, you're an authoritarian. You don't believe in liberty. Look, I just don't want that lockdown next January, February, Michael. I will do anything to avoid that. Anything. Well, within reason. And actually, these are quite small modifications on our behavior. Very small. So, you know, I mean, we're of a mind on this, Michael. But what I would say is, look, it's only like I say, we're in mid-October, Michael. And we had a very, very clement, warm September. I think it's very possible we, we see major problems next January, February. Major problems. We, we see the vaccine wearing out. We see people, you know, meeting and greeting each other indoors far more frequently. You know, people are going to really want to get their celebrations in over the Christmas and New Year period because they didn't do it last year. It could be a problem. That's all persuasive. Maybe it could be. Oh, God. No, I mean, there is definitely going to be a problem anyway. I'm not here saying don't, don't worry about it. I'm just, I, I don't think we're going to have a situation like we did um, earlier in the year. Let's move on to a non COVID story. Laura Koonsberg is set to stand down as political editor of the BBC. It's a role she has held for six years. The Guardian reports she is likely to move on to become a host of Radio 4's Today programme. The paper write that BBC political editors are often moved to senior presenting jobs well ahead of general elections, enabling their successor to get used to the position before a vote is held. As part of the reshuffle a leading, of leading BBC journalists, John Sopel is stepping down as North America editor and returning to the UK. Sopel's return means he is now a candidate to be the new BBC political editor, having been connected to the job back in 2015. According to Politico, Vicky Young, Amal Rajan, Beth Rigby and Chris Mason are also among the runners and riders for the BBC's top political job. Aaron, Laura Koonsberg has been a key player in setting the political agenda over the past six years. How significant could this departure be? I mean, I think she's the worst journalist at the BBC. And I know that there are some people, like I read Alex Wickham's newsletter in Politico this morning, and he said, oh, you know, pedestrian, whining about how bad she is. She's driven the big political scoops at the BBC over the last decade. You, you can have that position. I just don't. I just don't. And maybe my problem with her output is that as the BBC's political editor, she's obsessed with Westminster, and she very rarely looks or talks about the country at large. And the whole conception of politics with the BBC politics editor, I think, is quite limited. So is that a criticism of the role or Laura Koonsberg? You make your mind up. I think also she's re really let her down professionally time after time. Now, again, somebody can disagree with that. What I would like to see with somebody in the role is a big shift in where their focus is, a big shift in actually how they try and talk about stories. It's not gossip. It's not, you know a conjecture or speculation at Westminster. It's actually trying to sort of craft a narrative about the big picture, which is interesting and appealing to a wider audience. Lewis Goodall at Newsnight is very good at doing that. He's probably the best BBC politics journalist at doing that. He won't get this job, in my opinion, or I think he probably should get the job. I think he's the best qualified person for it at the BBC presently, because if he did, I suspect the Tories would cut the licence fee and Boris Johnson would have an aneurysm. So that won't happen because of politics. So when people say the BBC is neutral and it's not subject to government pressure, this will be a pretty good example. If Lewis Goodall gets that job, I will agree with you, but I don't think he will. Amal Rajan would also be another good bet. He can be quite heterodox. He can be quite interesting. He's, he's a good broadcast journalist. And then you're looking at the outsiders, Michael. I don't know if you saw this, but just before we went live on air, a bookmaker put odds of uh, Ash Sarker at 66 to 1. And uh, she put myself, uh, they put myself at 100 to 1. But Michael, I was asking myself, where is 
you guessed it, Michael Walker. Because you are, I think, you know, Navarro's most astute Westminster head. I would have had you at least 50 to 1. So what's going on, Michael? It's an outrage. Or maybe you're the dark horse. I've been shaking my head all morning because, yeah, I mean, I, I feel pretty hard done by here. Although I have to say, I think the odds are ridiculous. Let's get up the, the odds. This is a, a Daily Mail graphic based on the Betfair odds. So it has John Sopel at 6 to 4. I mean, it does sound, you know, quite likely. He's, he's very much like a BBC political editor, which is that he, talk, he talks about it all like a soap opera. Lewis Goodall at 5 to 2. He is definitely not the second favourite for this job. As Aaron said, that they're not going to hire this guy because it would be the end of the licence fee. Chris Mason, 11 He's to 1. He's actually good. Perfect. Yeah, exactly. 11 to 1, possible. Emily Maitlis, 6 to 1. Again, definitely not going to happen. They're not going to put Emily Maitlis in that job because, again, they would probably cut the licence fee because she's quite clearly a Remainer and not particularly pro Boris Johnson. Ben Brown at eight to one, and as you say, Amal Rajan at sixteen to one. Maybe he's the. If I was a betting person and I wanted to to bet on someone who could get the job, but also you get a decent payout, I think I'd probably go for him. Moving on from speculation, though, let's focus on Laura Koonsberg and her record in the role. Um, I've chosen one clip which I think sums up her style of journalism more than any other. Hello. 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 hello, hello. I'm sorry. Hi. That's quite all right. You okay? Hello. Do you have any coffee that way? I'm sure we can get you some, yeah. I've just been pummeled by pest. He kept corpsing. He kept laughing. Which I thought wasn't... Which I thought was... Robert, thank you very much. Thank you. That was an education as always. Thank you very much. Thank you. See you later. Yeah. What was he laughing at? Breaking into gales of laughter. It seemed to me to be... Is he laughing at you or with you? I think you have to understand about Boris Johnson is he really wants to be loved. And actually underneath it all, he's quite shy. But we all know someone like that, right? We all know someone who plays the clown. Because they don't want to be themselves. Someone who wants to play the clown. We all know because they don't want to be themselves. I mean, why I think that really sums up the problems of Laura Kuzberg is because it is it's politics is psychodrama, politics is soap opera, but also it's wrong. You know, Boris Johnson isn't shy. Boris Johnson has a real put-on persona to make him seem awkward. He's actually an incredibly calculated person, as you know, people who, who write about the, the occasions where he sort of turns up late to a meeting with his papers all ruffled, and he sort of pretends that, oh, I, I've almost forgotten my speech, da 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 and then he does the exact same performance at another charity do in a year's time. He's a very calculated person, and Laura Koonsberg not only falls for it, but she then projects it to... The 60 million Britons, which I think is, is quite frustrating. Um, for a characteristic tweet, um, let's go to this. This is how she responded to Keir Starmer becoming Labour leader. Whatever your own politics, this is a really big moment. Labour could now be an opposition that gets things done, plus carries out effective scrutiny, irrespective of anyone's ideas. Labour under Corbyn struggled ever to do that. Now, one of the reasons it struggled to ever do that was because Laura Koonsberg was confecting outrages about Corbyn not wanting to kill terrorists, which she had to apologise for afterwards. So this, this, this pro-establishment bias of, of Laura Koonsberg, where it's completely fine to delegitimize Jeremy Corbyn, because you know, he, he's not seen as, as, as a Westminster insider. She's a Westminster insider. Anyone who's not, she just doesn't understand. And she seemingly doesn't even consider it to be biased to, to say um, that Corbyn was useless in opposition. As I say, though, deference to the establishment is not just a feature of Laura Koonsberg. We shouldn't say this is all about her. It seems to be built into the role. Andrew Marr was one of Koonsberg's 
predecessors. This is how the then political editor reported the fall of Saddam Hussein 26 days after the launch of the Iraq war. I've been watching ministers wander around with smiles like split watermelons. Well, Mr. Blair's had his share of troubles and worries, as you rightly say, over the past few weeks. We've talked about them many times. Yes. To what extent has that changed now today? Well, I think this does one thing. Um, it draws a line under what had been before this war, uh, a period of uh, when a faint air of pointlessness almost was hanging over Downing Street. There was all these slightly tawdry arguments and scandals. That is now history. Uh, Mr. Blair is well aware that all his critics out there in the party and beyond aren't going to thank him because they're only human for being right when they've been wrong. And he knows that there might be trouble ahead, as I've said. But I think this is a very, very important moment for him. It gives him a new freedom and a new self-confidence. Uh, he confronted uh, many critics. I don't think anybody after this is going to be able to say of Tony Blair that he's somebody who is driven by the drift of public opinion or focus groups or opinion polls. He took all of those on. He said that they would be able to take Baghdad without a bloodbath and that in the end, the Iraqis would be celebrating. And on both of those points, he has been proved conclusively right. And it would be entirely ungracious, uh, even for his critics, not to acknowledge that tonight he stands as a larger man and a stronger prime minister as a result. He said they would be able to take Baghdad without a bloodbath and that in the end, the Iraqis would be celebrating. And on both of those points, he has been proven conclusively right. And it would be entirely ungracious even for his critics not to acknowledge that tonight he stands as a larger man as a result. I guess there are a few things ever said on national TV that have aged worse than that. Aaron, Andrew Marr used to be a Trotskyist. He ended up spouting some of the most pro-establishment imperialist nonsense I think I've ever heard on, on national television. Is there something about this role which means that people have to treat politics like like soap opera and have to have just a, an offensively pro-establishment bias and, and disregard the lives of, of Iraqis to only pay attention to how much people are smiling in number 10 or not? I thought you were going to ask, is there something about former Tr the former Trotskyist pipeline? Yeah, no, that, to when I saw he was a member of the AWL, I was sort of like, no, actually, backing imperialist wars isn't necessarily a huge leap, but... That's too niche for some of our, or not a leap at all. But I mean, also there's just a, there's a you know there's a huge number of people in similar situations. You know, Christopher Peter Hitchens in New Labour, people like Alan Milburn, John Reid were involved in in, in Trotskyist Stalinist organisations. Jack Straw, John Reid. I mean, a remarkable transfiguration of his politics over the course of the seventies and eighties. And I think a lot of that happened. Probably happened with Andrew Marr too, as well, Michael. Thatcherism changed the rules of the game to such an extent that these people just, they converted. It was like a, a religious conversion. And why I think they've been so unable to adapt to politics post-Brexit, post-Corbyn, post-financial crisis 2008, post-COVID, this kind of ensemble of crises and possibilities, and just a new kind of politics emerging on the right, on the left, not always good. The reason why I think they can't necessarily explain and understand it is because they've already converted once. And it's very, very rare that somebody converts once in their life, let alone twice. So you're sort of demanding they leave their new faith, which they found in the 80s, sort of centrist social democracy, highly socially, culturally liberal, economically quite conservative, don't really want to change anything from the Thatcherite orthodoxy. And actually, that explains why I think people like Ma, people like Mandelson, uh, people like Alistair Campbell can't really get to grips with 
politics and economics in the in the 21st century. In terms of what he was saying, you know, we we also have to recognise Michael that the job of the BBC political editor, the job of the BBC political editor, not somebody who's bad at the job, the job, the job description, is to effectively be a stenographer for power. It is to effectively be a press officer for the government in a moment of crisis. Not all the time, but if you're at war or during COVID-19 or, or, or when you know a head of state passes away or during a national emergency of some kind, the BBC time after time has demonstrated that it's a regime broadcaster. Now, that's not a, that's not a left-right issue. That is about it being effectively an outside flank of the state working on its behalf. They did this in 1926 with the general strike, and you, and you can think it was right in doing so or disagree with it. It did something very similar during the Second World War. The same applies. I, I would agree with that. It was a war against Nazism, but the same applies. And really, all the way through to the 80s and the 90s and the Iraq War, generally speaking, the BBC's coverage of these stories wasn't about informing, entertaining, educating the public but actually offering a cultural uh, and political pillar of support for the government of the day. So when people say that the BBC has a left-right bias, I think they get it all wrong. Fundamentally, the BBC has a bias towards the sitting government. And then if we're going to talk about its kind of ideological values, yes, culturally and socially liberal, but absolutely resistant to economic distribution, which is why, yeah, they had a few problems with Boris Johnson, but my word, they prefer him to the likes of Jeremy Corbyn or all the Labour left. And that's really crystallized in somebody like Laura Koonsberg. You know, the idea for her, and she's the BBC politics editor, Michael. Labour under Jeremy Corbyn won 40% of the 2017 general election. Clearly, you might not think all of it was because of the policies and so on, but clearly there was a big appetite for the, the policies and the ideas in the party manifesto. She's not remotely interested. She's not remotely curious. Somebody like Lewis Goodall, I think he's quite a curious guy. Same with Amal Rajan. They're quite curious and interested in, in politics beyond their preconceptions and their prejudices. Somebody like Andrew Marr, somebody like Laura Koonsberg, no. Which is why they're the BBC political editor and the likes of Lewis Goodall. I, I really, I think it's highly unlikely. I would foreclose that possibility despite the bookmaker's odds in the, in the Daily Mail. So yes, the problem with the BBC political editor role, I think you're right, should be sl seen slightly distinctly from from the inhabitants of that role. And I think we need, you know, an industrial editor at the BBC. I think you need to probably dismantle the role a little bit. You know, Laura Koonsberg, she can tweet something and it can completely undermine the work of dozens, if not hundreds of her colleagues in the same organization. People say the BBC's line on something is X. Well, actually, the PM show today, World at One, six o'clock news, the website, they all say something different. But because of her Twitter feed, from a good many people, that's the BBC line. And I, I think there's clearly a problem with that in a public service broadcaster to give so much power to one person who, as I've said, not particularly good at their job, but also I think the role itself has problems. We've got a comment on this topic. Julian PD tweets on the hashtag Tisky Sour. Can't wait for big tobacco John Sopel to rock up outside Downing Street. Really morally repugnant journalist. Now, that is a reference to John Sopel giving an off-the-record keynote presentation to a global tobacco giant. Um, so I think this was while he was the US editor. Um, in a couple of statements, Philip Morris International, that's the tobacco giant, said the terms of John Sopel's speech, including how much he was paid and what he said, were confidential. Now, this is not a guy who's short of money. John, John Sopel is one of the best paid journalists at the BBC. He gets £240,000 a year, but he still felt it necessary um, to go and give this, this speech. We don't know 
how much he was paid. On last Friday's show, we discussed tweets from Dominic Cummings attacking Keir Starmer as an uber dud. Well, that attack has now been expanded into a 12,000-word blog post. It's titled, How Could Labour Win? Swap dud dead player Starmer for a Midlands woman, shift HQ to a Tory-held Midlands marginal, focus on economy and crime. He says Labour should live in the village, focus on the public and marginalise trans BLM nutters, if you've forgotten how right-wing he is. And then he has a, a quote from Boris Johnson, thank God I'm up against Keir and haven't got to deal with Blair or I'd be totally fucked. Um, that's Boris Johnson in self-aware mode speaking in July 2020. Um, as I say, it's 12,000 word blog post. It does have you know a lot of interesting content. We're just going to take you through some of the key arguments. So on Starmer, Cummings says he is a dead player. That means he's someone who can only act according to pre-existing scripts. He can't you know, adapt to the moment or set the agenda. He gives a couple of examples of this. So he says, for all his babble at PMQs, there is no summary of a coherent description of Boris's ca catastrophic handling of the pandemic. The vaccine success and their failure to make progress has scarred them so much They've abandoned even talking about the fact the PM killed over 100,000 people while making jokes about it. And Starmer has bounced around so much and is now taken so unseriously, it's hard to see how he could do this even if he were given the ammo by someone who knows what they're doing. He goes on, It's so basic it's a sign of a total dud that he hasn't even tried to have an economic story, particularly when Boris has trolleyed around all year and deliberately ruined relations with his own chancellor, paralyzing the government's own economic story. All he can say about jobs, investments, skills, and so on is flat platitudes that leave no mark on the news, never mind public consciousness. Cummings also says Starmer failed to take advantage of Johnson saying at conference that shortages were not his problem. He said Starmer should have been hammering Boris Johnson about that. Instead, he said nothing. And he calls Sir Keir, a pro-Remain lawyer who floats around SW1 burbling empty platitudes, parroting every cliche about sexism, racism, trans, so psychologically incapable of challenging the system that he even supports the Met management when they're tweeting advice to women to flag down a bus while the rest of the country clutches their heads. All this is why Cummings thinks Labour should get rid of Starmer and replace him with, in his words, a woman from the Midlands. Perhaps Lisa Nandy, that's his suggestion. Once that new leader is in place, he suggests Labour should focus on the economy and on crime. He writes the following. Don't focus the bulk of your activity on the NHS. The public and media will focus on the NHS. This will be good for you. Your challenge is to make progress on the public's other big priorities where you do not have big structural advantages. People already trust you on the NHS. In the same way we shoved Boris in a hospital throughout 2019, Lisa should always be on TV with local businesses and police. When it comes to the economy, Cummings says, as you saw there, that they should make connections with small businesses. On crime, he gives a bunch of examples of, of how Labour should be attacking the Tories on this issue. So he suggests target assaults. All over the country, people see serious assaults causing permanent injuries, getting joke sentences. Get some examples and promise changes so severe a load of the usual suspects attack you. The Tories will implode. David Davis will start some ludicrous civil liberties campaign, which you then hang around Boris's neck, creating more infighting and so on. Um, other things that, that Cummings advises is that Labour avoid talking about trans issues or Black Lives Matter as they make it seem like the party care about things the public don't.
Aaron, I mean, it's clear Dominic Cummings is quite right wing from a lot that is written in his blog post. Is it also the case that on, on, on strategy and how one wins an election, he might be talking a bit of sense? He's won a number of campaigns. Not go in the Euro, Northeast Assembly, Vote Leave, and of course the 2019 general elections. That's four campaigns. So, you know, if he's, <clears throat> if he's offering general rules and laws and dictums and logic about how to win campaigns, I think it's worth listening to. Clearly, this is important to say, that the specifics of what he's saying, for instance, on trans rights is nonsense. And I think to say, I think this is worth reading, isn't the same as saying, I agree with all of it. I, I think what he's saying is, I think, A, what he's saying in that about, for instance, trans rights is, is morally repugnant. I also think, strangely enough, it doesn't actually have any basis in statistical evidence in terms of what people think. All, all the polling thinks, for instance, generally on side with, with the left's view on this. They, they don't think it's a hugely salient issue, and you would expect that to be the case. But the idea that sort of TERFs are the political common sense isn't, isn't, really, isn't really accurate. You know, we've done some sort of graphics about this on, on the Navarro media, social media, and so on. I think most people have this default of, of live and let live. Where they find things strange is that it becomes this big political sort of albatross. But I think that's more of a media confection than anything else. Now, one thing I find really interesting is he refers to the 1992 Clinton campaign. And he says that the Clinton campaign had this really neat method of responding to everybody. They had these rules, healthcare, it's the economy stupid and, and something else. Just three, four lines. Of course, we've all heard it's the economy stupid. Three or four very simple lines. And you know what this reminded me of, Michael? The 2017 Labour general election campaign, where you know Labour had a great rebuttal line to strong and stable. And they said, well, actually, the Tories are strong against the weak and weak against the strong. That was Theresa May's number one line, gone, redundant. Secondly, that's their big core vote is older people. Well, they're going to give you a dementia tax. Wow. That, that offered exposure on Theresa May like nothing else. Finally, for the many, not the few. Big master frame, you can pawn every single policy issue, you slam the Tories, you polarize it, get the majority on side. A masterclass from Corbyn and actually, look, the people around him in 2017. Of course, nobody in the political, in the political media in this country could say that. It's hinted at in that piece. It's hinted at. And that that elegance and that sophistication and sort of basic offer, being able to insert every single criticism and policy within sort of three or four premises, which Labour did in 2017, Keir Starmer is incredibly incapable of doing. You know, when five words will do, Keir, Keir Starmer says 55. When he was on um, the TV yesterday, he, he, he says the government needs to get a grip. It's out of touch. I'm, I'm calling them out. I'm putting them on notice. It doesn't mean anything here. And one thing that really did stick with me, finally, was the observation that when you're doing press, particularly, say, uh, uh, you know, a piece of camera for the six o'clock news, it doesn't matter what you say. You have to understand that the, the median voter is watching you effectively with the volume turned off, if not literally, metaphorically. And I think a, a perfect example of that, Michael, was immediately following the Hartlepool by-election Boris Johnson was up in Hartlepool by a, a Royal Navy, you know, this is a sightseeing place, I can't remember the name of the boat, a historic boat, up in Hartlepool, talking to people, shaking hands, being a man of the people. Meanwhile, Keir Starmer was in Westminster next to some folders, looking very staid, looking very uncomfortable, very claustrophobic. Now, in the minds of the people advising Keir Starmer, you look prime ministerial, you're at Westminster, you look like a proper politician. 
And look, pe- people don't want a political incompetent in charge of a party, and they don't want somebody who's chaotic and crazy in charge of the country, although arguably we've got that with Boris Johnson. But at the same time, you have to look normal. And there's this weird thing, Michael, with the, with the Labour Centre in particular. They've internalised this massively. You have to be kind of weird and odd and incapable of communicating clearly, incapable of getting on a level with most people. They have this weird Labourese accent. like They all talk in the same stilted estuary English way. Uh, you, know, uh, uh, you know, Rachel Reeves is the worst. And they think this is good. They think this is actually positive, and it means they're the professional politicians. What they don't grasp, and this is where I think Dominic Cummings is right, Michael, is that only about several thousand people, all of whom live in London, think that. Nobody else thinks like this. But because they all sleep with each other, have drinks with each other, go to one another's events, just talk to each other, spend Christmas with each other, are neighbors with each other, that they think that is the political compass of the country. And so his suggestion of moving Labour HQ out of London, that's the first thing they should do. I totally agree. Stick it in the West Midlands, although it's important to say Michael Wigan isn't in the Midlands, probably says something about his geography, but we'll leave that to one side. You know, maybe stick it in the Northeast, but I think the West Midlands is perfect. Um, and you would have a very different set of outcomes. It's super easy, Michael, to, to work in SW1, to never leave Zone 1, to have quite a nice, decent lifestyle and a decent wage living in London and think the whole country is like that. And it's not. Now, it doesn't mean you embrace social conservatism and his anti-LGBT rants, but it, but it does mean you identify who you need to convince and on what issues. And so, you know, I think there's a lot of wisdom in this piece. And I, I would say for people out there, is it worth the £10 a month on sub, Substack? No, it's not. Subscribe to Navarro Media instead. You'll get more of a more value from us talking about him rather than reading the thing itself. And also, Michael, finally, 12,000 words. I was reading it scrolling down. I'm thinking, Christ, when's this going to end? But it was useful. <laughs> well, it's, well, Keir Starmer's, my position was 12,000 words, wasn't it? And I, I read this one. I read the Cummings blog much more easily than the Keir Starmer one. I should say I, on trans rights, because I think it's important actually for the left to understand it. The public is on side on some things and not on others. So the pub, there's a really interesting YouGov poll which asks people what they do support and what they don't. So if you ask people, should people be able to self-identify as whatever gender they want, people say yes, because I think people think, you know, that's just manners, live and let live. But when you ask people, should um, trans women be able to use male toilets, they say only after they've had full... Um, you know, genital operations or whatever. I'm not saying I back that position. I'm just saying there is a, you need, that argument needs to be won. I think there is, there, I think there is a danger that some on the left think that you can sort of make things taboo before the argument has been had and won. And it, it's definitely not the case that the public is automatically on side with, with what people like Stonewall are calling for. That's not to say that argument shouldn't be had. Let's go to some of the interesting exchanges which resulted from that blog. We're going to go to Paul Mason's response. He says, In Dom's brain, where 500,000 Labour members are just cannon fodder, the leadership would focus relentlessly on crime, anti-trans stuff, and go relentlessly for swing voters. That's exactly what Labour's own focus groups also say. But the reason this cannot happen has nothing to do with Starmer being dud. It is because the party is an active coalition of social forces that do obsess with various aspects of, social, of the social liberal agenda. Cummings completely underestimates the potential power of Labour as a social coalition. The inescapability of its slow, lumbering, bureaucratic modus operandi is inseparable from its power to enact change. 
because ultimately for Cummings, and here's the sad part, the reality of class struggle does not exist. Its dynamic remains mysterious as they can't be MRP polled. And so the huge and dramatic shifts that are possible once people get on the streets, irrespective of what the bureaucracy does, are not in his playbook. He goes on, Cummings, for example, thinks it's really cool that Johnson won by proroguing Parliament and lying to the Queen. He looks through the mass active resistance movement we built simply because it lost, and thus sees BLM, Me Too, Gaza, etc. as threats to narratives, to Labour's narrative, rather than opportunities. To that, Fred, the idea of using proroguing Parliament as an example where actually it was the, the movement that won that battle, or where he doesn't think it won it, but you know, ultimately was strengthened. I mean, I think in retrospect, the whole stop the coup movement seems a bit silly, frankly. Um, I think Boris Johnson got that right. I'm not saying I necessarily, you know, I was sat on the fence at the time. Um, let's look at how Dominic Cummings responded. He said, the people you need to vote for you to win agree with me that Gaza and BLM are at best distractions from the serious problems they face. You can discuss stuff like that without having it define you as a fringe. They care about their kids more than Gaza. So that's Dominic Cummings. Paul Mason replies, I'm assuming you are here discounting Britain's three million Muslims here. When they see civilian deaths in Gaza, it's their kids they think of and ask any black person if police racism is a distraction. But your point taken, ignore our mass base and focus on Tory swing voters. Dominic Cummings responds, and stamp collecting is important to stamp people, a party seeking power, either as a debating society for graduates or trying to win. If latter, you must focus, not ignore mass base, but like FDR, Obama, Bill Clinton, speak to the country first. Good leaders manage this balance. Again, we talked about a Cummings-Mason exchange last week. And again, even though I don't share his politics, I kind of agree with Dominic Cummings here. And I think that whole exchange you have to understand in reference to the last four years of the Labour Party, because clearly where Paul Mason is coming from is that Labour were right to adopt a second referendum because the movement wanted a second referendum and therefore... Um, the power of the Labour Party only happens when it you know, falls into line with what the grassroots are demanding. Now, I disagree, personally. I think that what Jeremy Corbyn should have done is in 2017 say, no, we're completely ruling it out. We have to accept the, the result and then bring people with him. That's leadership. Leadership is you set the direction and you bring people with you. So Corbyn should have said, no, not happening at all. But I still think that you movements... You, you, you should come along with me because I'm going to offer economic transformation. I'll have a progressive refugee policy, for example. If you just have your platform as an agglomeration of different demands, it's going to be an absolute mess. That's exactly what the 2019 general election was, by the way. It was an agglomeration of all these disparate demands, which didn't make any sense to anyone. So I think Cummings is right here and Paul Mason is wrong. Again, even if I'm closer to Paul Mason's politics. Aaron, um, what do you make of this idea? Paul Mason saying it's actually the bureaucratic slowness of labor that gives it its strength to change things. Do you buy that? I just don't, I don't understand what Paul's saying anymore, personally. Class struggle, I mean, I, 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 what's class struggle? Class struggle was 5,000 people saying stop the coup in Westminster. 5,000 people is the class struggle. Mostly graduates, mostly under 40. That's the class struggle, really? Well, class struggle is mostly... You know, 30 guys in nice suits going into media green rooms as part of a multi-million pound campaign. I, I, I think Paul likes to use these words, but I often think he doesn't know what he's talking about when he uses them. In terms of, obviously, Dominic Cummings' view of political change and political action, yes, it doesn't include class struggle. It doesn't include the possibility of, of people's ideas being changed by political forces, <clears throat> class forces, beyond Westminster, ironically, given he hates Westminster. Good example, tax avoidance, tax justice. In 2010, barely on the agenda, 
because of activist movements and pressure from outside of parliamentary mechanisms, now tax justice is a hugely salient issue. No politician who wants to be elected and liked can say, I don't care about tax avoidance, whereas 10 years ago, they could. So on, on things like that, that yes, Dominic Cummings clearly has, um, it's a lacuna in how he understands politics. Equally, Palestine. You know, why, why do you think Labour almost lost Batley and Spen, right? One big reason was that they weren't taken seriously when it came to foreign policy. So firstly, if you want to govern Britain, you, yeah, you need to have a position on Israel-Palestine. It's a major foreign policy issue. So yes, you should have a position on it. Secondly, the idea that it's not politically salient, well, I, I would agree with Paul there. You've got several thousand people in a bunch of constituencies, which if you don't go a certain way on things, it's going to leave you in trouble. So I, I don't agree with everything he said. I think the, the way to look at Dominic Cummings and his, his output is to say that on the specifics, I think he can be wildly wrong. But actually, when he's talking about sort of general laws and dynamics and ways of doing things, historical examples, I think he's really sharp. Um, I, I thought Paul, Paul's response to him made zero sense to me. And Dominic Cummings, he's very heterodox. I don't agree with a great deal of what he says. But he gets you thinking. That, that used to be Paul Mason. It used to be. It isn't anymore. Uh, I hope that changes because he, he, I think Paul read that piece and thought, oh, that's the kind of thing I want to be doing for the left. You know, he, he went through this phase of about two years saying, here's what Corbyn should do. Here's what the left should do. And that's, that's not journalism. It's not a feature. It's not a reportage. It's still interesting. I've written pieces like that. He clearly wants to become the sort of guru for the left in a way that Cummings has for the right. And, and that's not happened. So there's a little bit of uh, resentment shining through, I think, Michael. I have to say, I do agree a lot more with Dominic Cummings, just like yourself, even though my politics are nowhere nowhere near his. And there are many substantial arguments I disagree with that he makes. But then again, Michael, look, Paul Mason is the person who said, if you don't understand Keir Starmer as being Labour leader, you're failing to grasp social democracy from a Marxist perspective. I mean, it's just these are just words. I just want to make sure I didn't misspeak earlier um, because I've someone has commented... Um, trans women already use women's toilets, do better, Navara. And then Saul has said, to me, it seemed Michael misspoke. He was talking about a recent poll that indicated a majority only agree trans women should use women's toilets after surgery. Um, I'm not sure if I did misspeak, but Saul is right. I'm definitely not saying that trans women don't use women's toilets or trans women shouldn't use women's toilets or that Labour shouldn't argue for that. I'm just saying that actually that the public isn't necessarily as progressive on this as, as many hope them hope that they, they will be, um, which, you know, to my mind means that a persuasive argument needs to be made. Let's move on to our final story. The health of the Queen is once again a subject of speculation among Britain's press. That's because it has, that's because it has been revealed Her Majesty spent Wednesday night in hospital after cancelling a visit to Northern Ireland. It had originally been reported she just needed some rest. And the delay in passing on that message might seem understandable. Perhaps a 95-year-old didn't want cameras chasing her to hospital. They waited a couple of days until they told the truth. The untruths, though, have really got under the skin of Nicholas Witchell. That's the BBC's royal correspondent. Let's take a look. It's quite difficult to read this. We were led to believe on Wednesday by Buckingham Palace that the Queen was resting at Windsor Castle. And as we were being told that by Buckingham Palace, and of course we were relaying that to our viewers and listeners and newspapers to their readers, in point of fact, she was uh, in hospital undergoing these, what are now described as 
preliminary investigations. So we weren't given the complete picture then, the palace, and one can understand the palace's perspective on this. They would say that uh, uh, the Queen is entitled to patient confidentiality, to medical privacy and that sort of thing, notwithstanding that she is the head of state and that uh, millions of people in this country and around the world will be concerned. The problem, it seems to me, is that rumour and misinformation always thrives in the absence of proper, accurate and trustworthy information. Now, will we get further information from Buckingham Palace today about her condition? I just don't know, but I think we need to recover a little bit from what happened on Wednesday. We are told that there were preliminary investigations taking place. Well, that would suggest that uh, after preliminary investigations, there may be some further subsequent investigations. We're told that she's in good spirits. That would certainly be in line with her stoical character. But that's a phrase, it's a little bit of a cliche now, this in good spirits. We're told that she's back at Windsor Castle undertaking light duty. Well, we must hope that we can place reliance on what the palace is telling us. We must hope we can depend on the reliance of what the palace is telling us. Um, it was quite a surreal intervention. Making it more odd was that he was wearing a black tie. And BBC hosts and, and presenters, they're, they're supposed to wear those black ties when the royals have died. So either that was, you know, somewhat threatening, you know, lie to me again and, and we'll see what can happen. Or it was him indicating that he's he's now got no trust in what they say, that the Queen could be dead and he doesn't know about it. So he's going to wear a black tie until he sees her in person because he does not trust anything that comes out of the palace anymore. Aaron, he seemed genuinely hurt, didn't he, as well as fuming. Yeah, it's quite funny, isn't it? I mean, for, for people who aren't British watching that, they, they might not grasp the gravity of what he's saying. For a BBC royal correspondent, talking those terms about Palisades is it's, it's basically like calling them the C word, saying they're useless, they should F off. You know, this is about as rude as it gets. I think the exact word he says was cliche. To say that they're offering cliches to the BBC royal correspondent when Her Majesty's, sorry, Her Royal Highness, Her Royal Highness's health is being questioned. I agree. And I think with the black suit, the black tie, very suspect, Michael. It's a bit like uh, criminology. We have a bit with politics in this country, but it's more so with the, with the royal household. Nobody has a clue what's going on in there. Nobody has a clue, Michael. It's interesting. It's also, it's also incredibly mundane. Every time on the, on the, because I listen to The World at One on Radio 4 quite often and sometimes PM, and the thing that always shocks me is every time they say, we're going to now talk to our BBC correspondent, and every time it's a different person, I'm like, how many BBC, how many, sorry, royal correspondent, yes, not BBC correspondent. How many royal correspondents can you possibly have as an organization? It's like they've got a whole team devoted to yeah. just, you know, conveying press releases from the palace to the public. Um, there was a, what a great job though, Michael. What a great, I mean, can you imagine? Like, yeah, I would love it. Just do nothing, just sit on your ass all day. Just sit in London, go to Buckingham Palace down the road. I suppose that's I why Nicholas Witchell was, was so pissed off because he only has, you know, he only has one job which is to find out when yeah, the Queen's about had, to die. And he's yeah, like, if you... You had one job. Um, I want to go to a quote from The Guardian. It was from a story about Laura Koonsberg moving on, but it was, I think, telling when it comes to how seriously the corporation takes covering the royals and the potential death of the Queen. Let's go to it. One BBC individual who is not moving jobs is Andrew Marr, who has been given a fresh contract to continue presenting his eponymous Sunday morning Political interview show. Sources suggested part of the reason for this is his work producing BBC programmes that will be broadcast when the Queen dies. 
how to cover this inevitable and era-defining news story is increasingly playing a role in shaping the BBC's planning for the next few years. Coverage of the end of the monarch's life is due to be presented by the News at Ten host Hugh Edwards, although he recently suggested he was considering his future as host of the corporation's evening flagship show. So for this story, which it will, it will clearly be a big news story, but I mean, it's not, it's not exactly surprising, is it? This 95-year-old is one day going to sadly pass away. And the BBC is not letting people retire or move on until she dies. So Andrew Marr has, has got his Sunday morning gig, even though, I mean, I think he's not a particularly good interviewer. He's, he's never very good at sort of getting, um, he's never very good at putting interviewees in an awkward situation in the way that someone like Andrew Neil is. I think they should probably try someone else. But apparently the reason he, he is remaining in that job is because he's made some, you know, prior documentaries about the Queen dying and they're going to keep him in that role until she goes. So if she lasts another 10 years, that's another 10 years of the Andrew Marr show. It, and Hugh Edwards, what if he wants to resign? He can't resign because he's, he's due to host a show when she pops her clogs. Aaron, it's kind of extraordinary, isn't it, that the national broadcaster who has what job is determined by them all not wanting to rock the boat until a 95-year-old passes away. What a way to run a multi-billion pound <laughs> organisation. Can you imagine any other organisation that's, sorry, you're going, to be, you're going to be the chief of operations until this person dies. Could be 10 years. Sorry. I mean, you could be in your 70s. You might get ill. You might have a terminal illness. Sorry. <laughs> I, think, I, I think as well, Michael, you know, a, 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 in a way, a more substantial story, because this is, of course, just speculation, is that Barbados got its first, I think, elected president mm -hmm. um, in the last 48 hours. Barbados is going to become a republic. And I think what's an open secret, really, is that many of these countries in the West Indies are going to become republics. We have the Commonwealth still, and the, the Queen is still the head of state for a great many countries, and that will change, and it will accelerate once Queen Elizabeth II dies. And so that adds an extra gravity to the, the political nature of her, her passing when it happens. It's going to be a truly extraordinary event, Michael. In many ways, it will be the sunset on the British Empire, because, of course, she ascended to the throne in the, in the 1950s. Britain was still very much an imperial power, still very much a world power. This was a country which developed, you know, commercial nuclear energy before the United States, before China, had a satellite program, had nuclear weapons before China, I believe. You know, it was a, a world power when she was the monarch, was of course outside the European Union, you started the global sterling area. And of course now in 2021, Britain is just a regular country in the North Atlantic, 65 million people, medium-sized economy, well, large economy, but you know, just a, a, a medium-sized power. It can do really impressive things, but only in collaboration with other countries. And she is kind of the avatar of that thing which is lost. And so when people say, oh, you know, there are no black people in British history. Oh, this is ridiculous. It's always been a white country. It's like, well, Britain was an empire. Britain fundamentally was the British empire. It referred to this thing which covered, in the last century, a quarter of the planet's surface. And, and she's the last remnant of that. And so when she goes, Institutions like the BBC, the military, the British establishment are fundamentally going to have to re-examine who they are, what they're about, what this country is about. And of course, they don't want to do that. And so the act of mourning will be so inflated. And the reason why is because they want to extend this sort of political status quo further. It's going to be very difficult, though, as, as, the, as the example of Barbados shows. You know, many people had respect both inside Britain, but also beyond it had respect for the institution of the monarchy because they had respect for the person of Queen Elizabeth II. And once she passes away, then that loyalty, that fidelity, that respect to the institution, all of a sudden that looks a lot more questionable.
Now let's wrap up the show. Aaron, it's been a pleasure, as always, being joined by you on a Friday evening. Michael, big respect to you for, uh, for, for soldiering through, Michael. <laughs> Good to see a bit of British grit. <laughs> I have had a lateral flow test, don't worry. Thank you, everyone. We'll be back on Monday at 7pm, so do have a great weekend. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.